0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. When you hear about a robbery taking place, what's the first thing that comes to mind? A bank, a gas station, or possibly someone's home? Well, today I wanna share five victim stories because some of them can't. It's a case that should have never happened that could have been stopped. Just when you think it's gone too far, it goes another step further. The town of Ogden, Utah, has a fascinating history, claiming to be the oldest European settlement in Utah, being founded in 1845. In 1917, Prohibition came to Utah, and it gained a reputation for gambling, shootouts, prostitution, bootleggers, and speakeasies. The city grew even more over time because it gave off a Wild West vibe. Once the Great Depression hit, the city began to suffer and relied heavily on their organized crime to control the gambling and prostitution. That was until the early 1940s when the town became focused on transportation. It became a hub of government agencies and services. The Hill Force Base was built in 1938 due to the area being considered a safe interior section of the country with easy access to transportation. Now Ogden is best known for an outdoor mountain town and locals and tourists go there in the winter to ski and during the summer to hike, mountain bike, and fish. It has a population of diverse locals, around 88,000. On the evening of April 22nd in 1974, 16-year-old Corey Nesbitt was out running errands. He had parked his car in front of the Hi-Fi record shop where his friend 20-year-old Stanley Walker worked. After running errands, Courtney decided to go to the Hi-Fi shop to thank Stanley for allowing him to park there. And this was a decision he would soon regret. Something seemed completely off the moment he walked through the door. Stanley and the other employees, 19-year-old Shelly Ansley, who had just started working there two weeks prior, were standing extremely still. He also noticed two men that certainly didn't work there, and they seemed surprised to see Courtney. It didn't take long for him to realize he walked into a robbery in process. And in that moment, it registered what he noticed outside of the shop. He had seen a man outside near the shop in a running car. That made three men who were a part of this robbery. Courtney was being... Vigilant, noticing that guy standing outside was good.
1: Unfortunately, it didn't help him avoid this situation. And besides, his friend was in that store. What a scary thing to walk in on.
0: He probably looked at him and was like, what a weird guy. I'm glad I'm going into my friend's safe store.
1: Exactly. So how did the robbers respond when someone walked in on their heist?
0: Well, both men started screaming at Courtney, Michelle, and Stanley, threatening them with their guns. And the men forced them down the stairs into the basement of the shop. There, the men demanded all three victims get on the ground. One of the men held them at gunpoint while the other began binding their hands and feet. The two robbers inside the shop were Del Pierre and William Andrews, and Keith Roberts was the man Courtney noticed waiting outside of the shop in the getaway car. All three men were actually a part of the U.S. Air Force and were only in town because they were stationed at the Hill Air Force Base just outside of Ogden. It didn't take long for the three victims to be missed, though. Since Stanley and Shelley were due back at home after work, and Courtney was long overdue to be home from running errands, not to mention he was past curfew, eventually Stanley's father Oren Walker and Courtney's mother Carol Nasbitt decided they were done waiting around and got in their cars to head to the hi-fi shop. Upon Carol arriving, she walked to the back door of the shop and flung it open, but she wasn't met by her son or his friend. She was met by the barrel of a gun, but this didn't stop Carol from trying to locate her son. William, while pointing the gun at her, asked what she was doing there, to which she responded, I'm checking on my son, what are you doing here? Within minutes, Carol was grabbed and taken down to the basement by both William and Dale. Once in the basement, Carol noticed her son and was forced to her knees and tied up. Courtney and Carol could hear each other at first, but they didn't look at each other, and then both of them just laid there in silence. It wasn't long before Orin was met with that exact same fate after walking into the store looking for his son.
1: Oh, no. I mean, these parents are going to go looking for their kids. Did these men seriously never think
0: to just lock the door? They could have avoided so much by locking the door. (laughs) It's such a simple solution to overlook. What exactly is their plan here? What they thought was a well-planned robbery had now turned into a hostage situation, which had unexpectedly grown to five victims held in the basement of the hi-fi shop. Inside the basement, one light bulb was the only source of light for Stanley, Michelle, Courtney, Carol, and Oren. With traffic outside of the store and the possibility of yet another individual coming in, the men began showing signs of anxiety and pacing. Dell grabbed a stool from the corner of the room and set a jug of liquid on it. He then grabbed a green cup and poured the liquid into it before walking over to Carol and forcing her to drink it. His exact words to her were, We're going to have ourselves a little cocktail party. To which she responded, I don't drink. Dale then told her, you're going to drink this. He grabbed her by the hair and forced her head back before pushing the cup to her teeth. He told her it was vodka and reluctantly she took one large gulp of it. Courtney watched his mother immediately start to cough and choke as the liquid began spewing out of her nose and mouth. Dale laid her down on the ground and left her gasping for air before walking over to the stool to refill the cup. The next victim he wanted to torture was Courtney. Just as he did with his mother, Dell set him up, held his head back, and forced him to drink what he claimed was vodka. The fumes from the cut began to burn Courtney's eyes, lips, and nose. He threw up and tried to cough up the liquid, but it only formed bubbles in his throat. As Carol and Courtney lay suffering from the effects of drinking what was actually Drano, Stanley was forced to drink it next, then Shelly, and lastly Oren. Oren, however, faked swallowing the Drano and mimicked the screams and convulsions of the other four hostages. The side effects included blisters on their lips, burnt tongues and throat, and peeled flesh around their mouths. This was only what was visible, because what was happening inside of their bodies is what would slowly kill them. Because you see, Drano is an extremely dangerous product and should never be consumed. Its main ingredient is sodium hydroxide, also known as lye. It's meant to break down organic matter, including hair, grease, and tissue. To silence their screams and hold the Drano in their mouths, William and Dale tried to put duct tape on them, but the open blisters prevented adhesive from sticking on.
1: God, that is brutal. Did they bring the Drano with them to the store or improvise when they got there?
0: Well, I couldn't find the answer to that in my source material, but I do know it was covered in a brown paper bag the whole time. Back then, Drano was in a can, so it could be easily placed in one. As we dig a little deeper, you may sway towards more of it potentially being brought by them. So I'm beginning to think this was planned then.
1: I think they always intended to make those victims drink Drano.
0: That's so messed up. Extremely messed up. And around 9 p.m., one of the men decided to remove the light bulb from the basement to make sure no one else outside the shop would notice the light and investigate. The only light they had left in the basement was a parking lot fixture through a small window. William went upstairs and the victims could hear the sound of a car starting. Dale remained in the basement where he began going through boxes. Not long after, that car pulled up to the door of the store and turned off. William knocked on the door to be let back in by Dale. At this point, all the victims are still in agonizing pain as they lay moaning on the ground. Dale let William in and they both began making trips up and down the stairs and out to their car with boxes containing records from the shop. And once they had filled their car, Courtney heard the sound of cleaning. It was the men wiping down the shelves and everything else they touched to get rid of their fingerprints. Dell then screwed the light bulb back into the ceiling, and all the men could be seen looking around and making sure they got everything they wanted. Courtney heard a snapping noise, which turned out to be the men putting on gloves. Dell walked over to Stanley and removed his watch, putting it into his pocket. He then went over to Oren, and he took his wallet out of his pocket, which contained five dollars. Even though he was only after the money, William told him to take the whole wallet, so he did. He moved on and took Stanley and Courtney's wallets, followed by Shelly and Carol's purses. That day, Carol was wearing her wedding ring, plus another ring and a gold Rolex watch. Surprisingly enough, they decided not to take those items. Shelly had also been engaged and was wearing her ring at the time, but they didn't bother to take that either. After they took what they wanted from the store and the victims, the men began arguing, to which Courtney could only hear William say to Dale, I can't do it, man, I just can't. To which Dale replied, give me about 30 minutes. William then walked up the stairs and left the store. As if what they had done to these victims wasn't enough, they were about to take it one step further. As soon as William left the store, Dale walked up to Carol and shot her in the head. He then moved on to shooting Stanley, Courtney, and Oren all in the head. He moved Shelly to the corner of the basement and proceeded to rape her before shooting her in the head. At this point, all the victims had been shot in the head, but Dale noticed that Oren was still somehow alive lying on his side on the carpet. Now bear with me, conjurers, because what I'm about to tell you is pretty graphic. Dale grabbed a ballpoint pen and stuck it into Oren's ear and then proceeded to stomp on it. Dale then assumed all the victims were dead, So he ran up the stairs and out the shop into the getaway car. Ah, nope,
1: nope, mm -mm, no, thank you. (laughs) Jesus, that is horrible. I'm not one to shy away from the gruesome details, but I can't handle anything dealing with the eyes or the ears. (laughs) Tell me about it.
0: I literally can't even imagine it. Like, who the hell even thinks about things like that?
1: What they did to those poor, innocent people is so sadistic. Not only was that completely unnecessary, it seemed like Dale, at least, was
0: enjoying himself. It does seem that way, but what he didn't realize was Courtney and Oren were somehow still alive. Steph will tell us how this case unfolded once the victims were discovered. For three hours, Oren and Courtney lay there
1: on the cold basement floor, surrounded by their dead loved ones and friends, suffering from everything inflicted on them. As you can imagine, by now it was entirely out of character for these victims to be out so late. Back at Stanley's house, his mother and Oren's wife was growing worried. She knew Oren went to the hi-fi shop to look for Stanley, and it made no sense for them not to be home yet. She woke up her other son, and they both got in the car and headed straight to the shop to see what was going on. Once they got there, they noticed Stanley and Oren's cars outside in the parking lot, so they started looking around. Oren could hear someone outside and began making as much noise as he could manage. To his luck, they heard him, and the other son broke down the back door of the shop. The horrific scene they found on the other side of that door sent fear down their spines. They immediately called 911. A dispatcher received a call from a man telling her people had been shot and were dead. He said, send the police to the hi-fi shop on Washington Boulevard. When police arrived at the shop, so did a forensic crime scene specialist that worked for the department named George Throck Morton. George would later recall walking into the building and seeing a man running around with a pin in his ear. He also saw four people that were tied up. Their hands and feet were bound together, except for Shelley, whose legs had been untied when Dale raped her. It was clear what had happened. According to George, the men gave the victims Drano, but once they found out it wouldn't kill them because they were throwing it up, they gave them more and went to put tape over their mouths, which didn't hold up. When that didn't work, they shot each one in the head to make sure they were dead.
0: Well, detective, you're right on the ball. It's crazy how they can put all of this together so fast without hearing from the victims first.
1: It must have been a horrific
0: sight to see. Yeah. So what else went down upon arrival?
1: Well, Shelley and Stanley were declared dead on the scene. However, Carol was rushed to the hospital because she had a faint heartbeat, but the chances of her regaining consciousness was low, and soon after, she was also declared dead. Courtney and Oren were rushed to the hospital and given extensive treatment. The investigation began on April 23rd, and they immediately started canvassing the area, hoping someone could help them figure out who could have done this. It would eventually pay off when a tip came in from Hill Air Force Base. The caller said that William had confided in him months prior about one day robbing the hi-fi shop and had bragged that he was willing to kill anyone that got in his way. The caller continued telling them to look in the dumpsters around the base. Investigators did exactly that, and what they found was the victim's personal items, including Shelley and Carol's purses and the victim's driver's licenses. There was an audience of people who lived on the base watching, hoping to find out what was going on. Police decided to use this attention as a tactic to find out who was responsible. The investigator pulled the items out of the dumpster and began showing the crowd asking if anyone knew anything about them. The tactic worked out in their favor because two men got visibly nervous and suddenly didn't want to stick around. William and Dale noticeably walked off and began whispering. One of the investigators remembered Dale from another incident that had led police to the base in a recent past about an auto theft case. The authorities immediately issued a search warrant for William and Dale's entire barracks. They performed a very thorough search, and while searching between a rug on the floor under Dale's bed, they found a folded piece of paper. It was a lease agreement for a storage unit rented under Dale's name. At this time, Dale was over on the other side of the room trying to manipulate the police by all means necessary to look like a good guy. George approached Dale with the lease agreement, and his response wasn't to provide an innocent reason why he had a storage unit. In fact, he refused to respond at all. Dale was done talking, and George knew they had their guy, and they were going to find out exactly what was in that unit.
0: Apparently, he thinks search warrants don't include under the bed. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah his hiding spot wasn't great
0: (laughs) if they didn't find everything on base there's really only one other place it can be
1: yeah to no one's surprise the unit was filled with all the stolen equipment and records from the shop what investigators didn't find in the dumpster they would find in that storage unit dale was arrested and charged with aggravated murder and attempted murder and william's arrest followed not long after William cracked and gave up the getaway driver, Keith Roberts, who was also willing to give up information to the police in exchange for a lighter charge of aggravated robbery. On October 15, 1974, the joint trial for Dale and William began. This case was national news and followed by just about everyone. The investigators were praised for their hard work and how fast they cracked this case. It was displayed as a perfect example of good investigation. During the trial, Oren testified against the men, calling them sadists, and told the court that Dale had enjoyed every minute of torturing them all, and he had been prancing around after shooting Carol in the head. He continued expressing his disbelief that he was alive to be a part of this trial at all, and expressing the devastation that his son's life was taken with two gunshots and a cup of Drano. He said, and I quote, Dale tried five times to kill me. Each one could have been lethal, and it certainly has changed our lives. End quote. He went on to tell everyone the trauma him and his family are living with every day. His son that found them in the basement now sleeps on a mattress in his parents' room every night, and his wife has spent almost every day in bed mourning the loss of her son.
0: I'm sure they're traumatized. That's a gruesome scene to walk into. Your brother's dead and your father in the condition that the murders left them in?
1: i know i'd be traumatized i feel so bad for these families those people were just in the wrong place at the wrong time so did the other survivors speak well courtney was still alive as well but he had a severe brain injury and amnesia he never went back to being a hundred percent after that day another thing that came out in court is that dale and william watched the movie magnum force over and over in this film, a character is forced to drink Drano, and it immediately kills them. Being too dumb to figure out movies aren't real life, the guys thought that that would be the perfect way to kill someone. One month later, on November sixteenth, 1974, the jury found both Dale and William guilty of aggravated murder and attempted murder, and on November twentieth, the judge sentenced them both to death. Keith, the getaway driver, was sentenced to five years to life and was released 13 years later. The men were sent off to death row, but like 99% of the crimes we discuss on here, they would later file an appeal. During a clemency hearing, Dale took the floor and testified. Quote, The crime took a course of its own. It wasn't planned that way. People just kept coming in and I just panicked. The only way to prevent what happened would be to be moved away from the base entirely. Of course, the alcohol and pills I was consuming didn't help. Valiums, reds, black beauties, and yellow jackets. Everyone has a limit as to where they won't go. Drugs can alter that limit. I tell myself you have to accept responsibility for it. You did it. You were there. You can't rationalize it. End quote. William testified right after and told the court he had never seen Dale drink or do drugs. Dale came off as a bit of a manipulative know-it-all, and he had even changed his name 27 times in prison to supposedly protect his family. On August 28, 1987, Dale was taken to the death chamber and executed by lethal injection. He was 34 years old. William's attorney tried to get him clemency, telling the judge that he was on drugs at the time of the murders, and so young, and a changed man. However, his lengthy list of prison violations, which included arson, said otherwise. In an interview William did, he told the reporter that Dale was a loner and he had never seen him drunk before. He even went on to talk about the store clerk, saying he knew and liked Stanley. He even joked with Stanley during the robbery before forcing him to the basement. He claimed he had no idea that Drano might kill someone, but prosecutors disagreed. He contradicted himself by saying, I was informed the Drano didn't work and hadn't accomplished what he, being Dale, wanted. He doesn't take responsibility for the murders because he left before Dale shot them. In July of 1992, William was executed by lethal injection at the age of 37.
0: Yeah, sorry. You can't say it wasn't planned to use the draino to kill them, but also it didn't do its job at killing them as planned. <laughs> right, idiots? This was always the plan. They have no excuse. So are there any updates on the survivors?
1: Well, Courtney returned to high school and graduated with his class in 1976. But due to his brain damage he was still suffering from, he was unable to attend college. He struggled holding down a job and he suffered lifelong memory loss and was put on disability. He did, however, find love. Courtney married Katherine Hunter in 1985. That marriage lasted for 17 years until sadly on June 4th, 2002, Courtney passed away at only 44 years old. Oren died in 2000 at 69 years old. The family and friends of the victims were changed forever.
0: No one can imagine walking into a store or going to work and having their entire life taken from them, mentally or physically. Those men can't blame this on drugs or on each other. They did this and they had to live with it up until their execution date. This may be the one case where I applaud authorities for being so diligent and not second-guessing themselves. This is truly a case that was handled how all cases should be handled from start to finish, However, if it wasn't for the survivors of this case, we may have found the killers, but we may never have known the full horrors of what took place in that basement.
1: In this case, the police were able to locate their suspects thanks to a tip that came in from the base. Most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website or from the tip submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at CrimeAndContra.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week, and you can also find us on TikTok. (laughs) Sham, what's our Conjure tip of the week? These days, we're full of fear and anxiety. We live in a time where things are happening fast, and we can't catch a break from these back-to-back tragedies. Unakai Jasper is a stone that provides healing energy to come to terms with the traumas and experiences that spark fear. This stone has deep ties to the heart chakra and brings your upper and lower chakras to balance. It invites calm and soothing approaches to work on releasing fear. That's a great one. It's only found in the U.S. and it makes an excellent
1: talisman. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant conjurers. conjurers.